and uh, stay in neighboring villages. And they would just travel, you know, two or three miles from a neighboring village into Jerusalem to celebrate the festivities. And the merchants there in Jerusalem uh, had a field day because it would be like Christmas week in America. That's when they really made their money. They made their money during the three major feasts of the year in Jerusalem. So they depended upon all these pilgrims. Now, we're going to focus only on one set of pilgrims. Okay? Pilgrims that are coming down from the north on the Jericho Road toward Jerusalem. And Jesus is among them. So that's the setting. So let's look at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 21. Remember now, they're coming from all different directions. We're just going to look at the group of pilgrims coming from the north. And that includes Jesus. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem, notice where they come to. They came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives. Now, Bethpage is one of these small villages. It's about two miles east of Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley at the base of the Mount of Olives. And so that is the setting. And it's, uh, the Mount of Olives, if you look out east of Jerusalem, it sort of fills the skyline. So that's what we're talking about here. Then Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you. And we don't know what village that is. It could be Bethany, for example. And immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt or a foal with her. Loose them and bring them to me. Now Matthew's the only one of the four gospel writers that mentioned two animals. Mark, Luke, and John just mentioned the colt or the foal of a colt. Matthew mentions a donkey. Uh, so what we're assuming is that this is probably the, the mother and her foal. A foal is a, a very young uh, animal, most likely unbroken. Jesus is going to ride this colt or this foal into Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry. Uh, most likely uh, you know, that animal would buck and kick and everything. So Matthew lets us know how that really took place. I remember preaching one time, but when Jesus got on the animal, it didn't kick, it didn't buck. I mean, he was like a cowboy who just controlled that. Most likely is that uh, they bring the mother along so the, the baby uh, doesn't kick and this feels more comfortable. We're not sure. But anyway, Matthew is the only one that mentions both of those. Okay. Now, Jesus tells them when they go there, they're going to find something. They're going to find the donkey tied and the colt or foal with her. And this seems to indicate that he knows they're going to be there. Probably some sort of prearrangement has taken place. Some people think he knew this supernaturally. I don't think that's the case. And when we get to the Last Supper, I'll show you why. Because there's a similar situation where he says, you'll go into the city, you'll see a man with a jar, you know, asking where this room is that we're supposed to have the Last Supper. All this has been prearranged. And uh, so Jesus tells them just to go there and they'll find this setting. Okay? There'll be these animals tied up waiting for them. Now look at verse 3. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. 
That's the message that if someone says, what are you doing? Here's the coded message. Here's the secret message. Just say, the Lord has need of them. If he hears that message, guess what he'll do? He'll send them along. Uh, the fact that they use the word Lord indicates that this person who has the animals probably is a, a follower of Jesus in the area. And But what happens if somebody comes along and sees the animal and he says, what are you doing? And they said, oh, we thought we might get a ride. Well, that wouldn't be the message, would it? The guy would say, get out of here. <clears throat> so there's a coded message. The message is the Lord has need of them. Now, in verses 4 and 5, what you have is Matthew's explanation. If you have a red letter Bible, you know it now goes from red letters to black letters. And here's what Matthew says. All of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, lowly, sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now this is a quote from Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. And I, I thought today we would turn there and take a look at it, because we haven't done this in the past when we've dealt with the triumphal entry, and I thought we would today. That's the next to the last book in your Old Testament. Okay? Zechariah chapter 9. That quote tells us what kind of king the Messiah will be. He will be one who rides on a donkey, a, a foal, a baby donkey, uh, the cult of a donkey. So when you get to Zechariah, turn to chapter 9. And look what it says. Look at verse 9. My Bible actually has a title over that verse. It says, The Coming King. And here's what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. And here's a parallelism. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. He is just and having salvation. Now watch this next word. Lowly. See that? <clears throat> Lowly. Riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow, bow, uh, bow shall be cut off. And he, that's the one coming, the king, he shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> so, what Matthew says is that when Jesus comes riding this colt, he is fulfilling this prophecy. Notice, this is not a triumphant warrior coming into Jerusalem on a white stallion like General George S. Patton. You notice that? That's why I said that triumphal entry is a misnomer. There's nothing triumphant about this. Okay. Now, we see in those words, in verse 9, number 1, the word lowly, which means lowly riding on a donkey. The cold of a foal. Which means this is a humble entry. Not a proud, arrogant entry of a victor who's just come back from war. Although a battle's been fought, notice in the end, toward the end of verse 10, it says, He shall speak peace to the nations. You see that? He brings peace 
but he doesn't bring peace that's been won by a sword. The peace is won by a word. He speaks peace. You notice that? He speaks peace. In fact, when the scripture says Christ returns, uh, there's a sword that comes out of his what? Mouth. And what is it? It's the word of God. The peace that he brings is spoken peace, not peace that's won through battle like we would have in uh, modern warfare. Look at the extent of that peace at the end of verse 10. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That means it's going to be a universal peace that he's bringing. So, here is their king coming into Jerusalem on a donkey and he's coming as a servant king who will bring peace through his word and his peace will extend universally. That's the kind of Messiah King Jesus is. Now that's not the first time this has been said. I'll show you one other time. I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 49. As I studied this in great detail a number of months ago, maybe a year or two ago, as I was writing my other book on the Lord's Supper, and I deal with this extensively in that book, I show that Solomon, when he became king, he was going to succeed his father David, and David put Solomon on a donkey and told him to ride into Jerusalem and proclaim himself to be king. Solomon was meant to be a humble king, but guess what he became? An imperial king. A king that conquered, a king that took over lands, a king that, that became wealthy, a king that uh, had many wives and concubines. Uh, he was supposed to be a humble king, uh, but he turns into an imperial king. Well, the, uh, the Genesis 49 passage is a very interesting one because this is Jacob lying on his deathbed and he calls each one of his sons up and he gives them a blessing. You familiar with that? The blessing of Jacob upon his sons? His twelve sons? And what you have in verse 10, he has the prophecy about the Messiah coming out of the tribe of Israel. Many of us are familiar with this verse. It says this, And the scepter, that would be the king's scepter, shall not depart from Judah. Jesus is from the tribe of what? Judah. This is a prophecy that Jacob gives on his deathbed. Nor a lawgiver between his feet until Shiloh comes, uh, which is a reference to the Messiah. He who comes. The, one, the coming one. Now we just saw in Zechariah, the king is coming. And this is a reference to the king coming. And to him shall the obedience be the obedience of the people. Now look at verse 11. Binding his donkey. Look at that. To the vine. And his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments with wine and the clothes in the blood of grapes. And it's describing a prophecy about a king who's going to come and he links this king to a donkey and a colt. And he's coming. And so Zechariah picks up that language and he says it. And then Matthew says Jesus fulfills it the day that he enters Jerusalem on the foal, the colt of the donkey. So the king is coming to Jerusalem, but he's going to be a different kind of king. Not a king who conquers. 
with a sword. He conquers with the word. Now, not too long ago, there was a book where two authors dealt with this issue. And what they said is, during this Passover week, there were two processions that came into the city. The one came in from the east, and that's Jesus, and he's on a donkey. The other one comes in from the west, enters Jerusalem from the west, starts out at Caesarea Philippi, comes into Jerusalem from the west, and that is the entrance to the city by Pontius Pilate. Pilate is on a white stallion representing the Roman Empire. Jesus is on a donkey representing the kingdom of God. One says, we bring peace by a sword. The other one says, I bring peace by a word. One represents the force and the other one represents faith. And those two processions coming in from opposite sides, coming into the city from opposite sides, in a sense, represent two kingdoms that are clashing, that will clash that day, that week in Jerusalem. The kingdom of Rome, the kingdoms of this world, and the kingdom of God. And they will come face to face. And one will stop out the other. And that will be Rome. That's my little thing right here. That's down there. And Rome will say, by force, we killed the man. We killed his kingdom. We ruined his plot. We've won. But three days later, Jesus is raised from the dead. And who wins? Rome thought, by force, we'll get rid of this man. We'll kill him with a sword. And they kill him. But Jesus puts his faith in God. One by force, the other by faith. Which one wins out ultimately? Faith wins out ultimately. So you have this clash of kingdoms. And I think that you need to see that. I think that's what Matthew and the Gospel writers want us to understand. That he's on this lowly donkey and this is a different kind of kingship than anyone in that city expects. And his disciples don't expect him to be that kind of a king either. So let's look at verses 6 and 7 in Matthew 21. And what you have, it says, So the disciples went and they did as Jesus commanded and they brought the donkey and the colt. Now watch this. And they laid their clothes on them and he sat on them. Not on two animals, but on the clothes. Okay? Some people say, well, he, must, he sat on them. He must have sat on two animals. He must have struck, you know, straddled two animals. No, he's not a circus performer standing up with one foot on the saddle air and one foot on the... Not that. Okay? Uh, one commentator says they laid their clothes over both the animals. So the clothes are over both the animals. And that brings that colt next to her mother. But Jesus only sits on the one animal. And he sits on the clothes. <clears throat> and then it says, And a very great multitude, this is verse 8, verse eight spread their clothes on the ground, on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So Jesus is being given the, the red carpet treatment here. 
The Gospel of John tells us that the kind of branches they cut down were palm branches. That's why we call this Palm Sunday. That's all based on the Gospel of John. In fact, did you know that Jericho is known as the city of palms? So uh, evidently there's a lot of palms in Jericho. They cut down these, these branches. They lay them before Jesus. They lay their clothes before Jesus. He's given this red carpet treatment. He's going to go from about Bethpage into Jerusalem. About two miles. And so he approaches the city. Verse 9 says, Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now they acclaim Jesus several things here. <clears throat> this is a a proclamation. Who who says this? Hosanna to Hosanna. Blessed is he. Hosanna. Who says that in verse nine? The crowd that's traveling with him. Do you see that? Not the people in the city. You understand that? It's not the people in the city who say this. It's the multitude who went with him, who went before him, who were up there in the line before him, and who followed him. They cry out or claim three things. First of all, Hosanna, which in this case would mean praise. Praise to the Son of David. Son of David is a title which means Messiah King. Praise to the Messiah King. They recognize him as that. Number two, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quote from Psalm 118. He comes in the name of the Lord. That means he is God's emissary. He speaks for God. He's the Messiah King. He speaks for God. He speaks for God. That's important. And then, Hosanna! In the highest! <clears throat> that sounds a lot like uh, what the angel said at his birth, wasn't it? Something like that. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, what? Peace. Goodwill. Toward men. So here we see these threefold proclamation, and from the the the, uh, the tense of the verb, it means they do it repeatedly, over and over and over and over and over and over again. That period until they get to the gate of the city. Now look what happens in verse ten. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved. <clears throat> this is a grand entry. And uh, one commentator translates it this way. The city went wild. They were moved. They were emotionally moved because all these people were chanting, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he! Hosanna to the Son of David! And so the city is just so moved. And Look what happens at the end of verse 10. They say, Who is this? They don't know what's going on. <clears throat> what's going on around here? What's happening? What's all the commotion at this eastern gate? You know, Who is this? So you have two groups. You have one group that's coming in, doing all the shouting. Another group already in the city, wondering what in the world is going on. Who is this guy? Okay. Verse 11. So the multitudes, same group back in verse 9 that are with him. The multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the northern prophet that you've all been hearing about. The wonder worker. 
the prophet, one who speaks for God, the northern prophet. So Jesus is portrayed as a king who comes into town on the donkey and as a prophet, one like Moses who's a deliverer. And when he gets inside the eastern gate on the eastern side of the city is the temple. And that's where the procession stops, according to Matthew. And you see what happens. It says, then he went into the temple. So now he's off of his mount. He dismounts. He went into the temple and he drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple. Now, we think that he's against the sellers. He doesn't just drive out the sellers. Who else does he drive out? The buyers. Do you see that? He clears this area because they are doing this merchandising in the court of the Gentiles, which is meant for worship, and it's being used for the wrong purposes. And so what he wants to do is he wants to clean out the court of the Gentiles so these people can come in and worship the way they're supposed to worship during the Passover. So this, this activity that's going on has hindered the Gentile uh, converts, in a sense, from going in and worshiping. So he clears out that area. Then it says in verse 12, he overturned the tables of the money changers. Now what in the world is the table of the money changers? Every Jew had to pay one half shekel tax a year for the maintenance of the temple. That's known as the temple tax. And there was a certain period that you could pay for it in your own location, and if you didn't, guess what you had to do? You had to come to the temple and pay it. And many people who were planning on coming to Passover would just come to the temple and they would pay it. The problem was, is that the temple tax had to be paid in a certain coinage. They just didn't take anything that you gave them. You had to go and take your coinage, take it to the, to the table, and have your coinage converted. And then you would pay. And so he throws them out, because they too are taking up that space. And then finally, it says, he overturned the seats of those who sold doves. Now that's very interesting. The ones who sell doves. Now when you went to celebrate Passover, you had to take a sacrifice. Poor people sacrificed doves. This is how we know Jesus' family was very poor. Because when Mary goes through her purification rites after the birth of Jesus, remember he's circumcised, and then she has to go through a purification process, she brings two turtle doves. Those were the, the least expensive sacrifices that you could make. And only poor people bought those kinds of sacrifices. Now you could buy a turtle dove for just a few cents. It wasn't very expensive. You would have bought it out in the marketplace. But what would happen is you would bring it into the priest and he would look at it and say, oh, it's got a spot on it, a little blemish here. Rejected, rejected. But if you bought the dove in the temple complex, you paid four times as much, but guess what? It was guaranteed to pass inspection. 
So what was happening is the poor people were being exploited. And so he throws, overturns the seats of those who sell the doves. Now this whole area, this this where all this merchandising took place in the court of the Gentiles, popularly was called the Bazaar of Annas. In other words, that's what you call it. So where are you going? I'm going to go to the Bazaar. Bazaar of Annas. It was owned by the high priest family. He was the one who got all the profits from the concessions, or he rented out the concession stands and made a lot of money. So what we have is we have the religious leaders exploiting the poor people here. So what you have happening is this is a symbolic act. By Jesus clearing all this out, opening room for the Gentiles to worship, it's a symbolic act because there's no indication that the next day those tables weren't set up again. And the next year, and the year after that, the year after that. So what he did wasn't permanent, but it was a symbolic act. And it was showing the religious leaders and the people what God thought of these activities. That they were hindering Gentiles from worshiping in the temple. And then look what happened in verse 13. He said to them, It is written, My house, that's the temple, shall be called a house of prayer. And that is from Isaiah chapter 56. In, in that passage in Isaiah 56, my house should be called a house of prayer for all people, including Gentiles. And then he says, but you, you high priest, have turned it into a den of thieves. It's the high priest who are the crooks. It's the high priest who are the bandits. And so the Gentiles can't get in to pray because there's no room for them because the high priest has sold out the area, rented out the area to merchandisers. Now, this is important because Matthew's Gospel is about Gentiles. A lot about Gentiles in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus is the light to the Gentiles. Israel is supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. He tells the disciples after his resurrection, go make disciples of what? All nations, including Gentiles. It's all about that. Matthew's audience, written maybe 50 years later, is made up of Jews and Gentiles. There must be made room for the Gentiles. And they are keeping the Gentiles out. And they are distorting the mission that God has for the nation of Israel. Does that make sense? So look at it, verse 14. Something very interesting. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. Uh oh. Lame people are not allowed in the temple. Blind people can't come in the temple. They don't keep Gentiles out. If you're blind, you don't get to worship. If you're lame, you can't go in the temple. Guess what? He said, Hey, come on in. You too, come on. There's room for everybody. And then look what he did. The end of verse 14. He healed them. That's a sign that the kingdom has come. Healing of blind people, raising up lame people, based on Isaiah chapter 35 and other chapters, verses. This is a sign that the kingdom of God has come. Now look at verse 15. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children 
crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the Messiah, Son of God. They just started saying, praise the Lord, hallelujah, look at all these people getting healed. Yeah. What did they do? They were indignant. Now, what does this say about these people? The priest, being indignant over people being healed, being indignant over people praising God, they don't say hallelujah. They say this guy is messing up our operation. And before long, we'll lose control of the people. There'll be riots. Rome will send soldiers in. We're going to lose everything. So they are very upset. In fact, we can say this. It was the activities of Jesus in the temple that ultimately lead to his crucifixion. It wasn't the triumphal entry that led to the crucifixion. No one got upset about him coming into the city on the cult. They do get upset when he overthrows the money changers in the temple. It's what's going to seal his fate. They would have killed him right on the spot if the people, there weren't so many people for him at that point. And look what they said to him in verse 16. They said, Do you hear what these people are saying? Because it says children were crying out, Hosanna to the Son of God. Do you hear what they're saying? They're saying you're the Messiah. Come on. Tell them the truth. Yeah. And he said to them, yes. Oh yeah, I hear. I'm not deaf. I hear. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants? You have perfected praise. God perfects praise when infants make noises. And that's a quote from Psalm 8, verse 2. Notice who makes the praise. Babes and infants. Uh, people without any power. People without, no, without any status. See, people on the margins. People that everybody else rejects. Kids! Kids who can't even fit for this up. They recognize the Messiah, and guess what? The high priest and the chief priest are blinded. They can't even recognize him. So it's the people always on the margins and the people without power and status who seem to come to Jesus and understand exactly who he is. And then, verse 17 says, he left them and he went to the city of Bethany, that was the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and he lodged there. Now what's going on? This is a crazy way to end this story. I thought he was going to overthrow Rome. Everybody that was with him were saying, Hosanna to the Son of God. They thought he was going to overthrow Rome. He just overturned the tables. What's next? He's going to just take over the whole city, eliminate Pontius Pilate, proclaim Israel a nation, a kingdom. But he doesn't do it. How disappointed must they be? He just gets on the cult and goes and walks one, one or the other and goes to Bethany. They had to be let down. They had to be depressed. They had to be conflicted. They had to be confused. They were excited about everything that went on, but what in the world's going on? Now, one thing we know that by the end of the day, the name of Jesus was on everyone's lips. But they just couldn't figure out what in the world he was doing. So, what we have here is two events. <clears throat> First of all, we have the triumphal entry, which is a parabolic ride. When I say a parabolic ride, it is an enacted parable describing what the Messiah will be like. 
He will be a servant. He will be lonely. He will be the counter to Rome's power and the counter to the high priest's power. He will be one who comes and wins and defeats Rome by his service and by his words. And then at the temple you have another enacted parable in which he shows through his dramatic actions what God thinks about Israel and the temple at this time, especially the high priest. They are hindering people on the margins and opportunity to worship. Jesus opens the way for everybody to worship. He allows the blind and the lame to come in and worship. But he doesn't leave them that way. He heals them. Showing the power of the kingdom. Now when I look at this, especially in light of what's going on this week in our church, I say, what about us? We have, uh, we're going to have a new sanctuary. We're going to have a new house of worship. And we need to really do some motivation checks here, don't we? Because what are we going to do? Are we going to open it up and allow it to be a house of worship for all people? Will we accept those who have no status, people on the margins? Ooh, because that Will we welcome them into our church? Or will we be more concerned about property, profits, than we are people? See, these are the kinds of things that we need to draw from this when we look at a passage like this. So, what we need to do, we can't determine what everybody else does in the church, but you know what we can do? We can determine what we do as church members can. And so what we need to do is make sure that we make everybody feel welcome. And we invite people to say, hey, here's an empty seat right here. You can sit with me. You need to introduce yourself. You need to find out about those people. Find out what their needs are. Jesus finds out what their needs are. He welcomes them into worship. He doesn't leave them that way. He heals them. What are we going to do to help people who have needs? We need to invite them to sit at our table. We need to invite them to lunch. We need to invite them to worship with us. If we don't, then we end up falling into the classification of the of the high priest. And what we need to be is we need to be like the children who recognize Jesus' true nature as a Messiah King who is a servant and we need to emulate Him. So while they hail Him as Messiah, they don't understand really what kind of Messiah is going to be. They miss it by a country mile. And people have been missing it by a country mile for the last 2,000 years. Jesus comes trusting his Father implicitly, a man of faith, and that's what we must do, and we must reach out to others who do the same. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, this passage, which uh, is very timely for us as a, as a church starting a new venture. Uh, we're going to have a building that uh, we're going to have delight in, that's going to bring us joy. And we are going to have a tendency to be possessive. Help us to realize it is your house of worship. Help us to be welcoming to everybody. Help us in this class to do our part and be a witness to others to follow suit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.